one announcement. We need to make sure that everybody's addresses and phone numbers are up to date with uh, uh, Louise Tiviage to make sure that everything gets in our phone tree so that as the uh, winter approaches, the possibility of inclement weather arrives, we can all be properly notified. Along with that, I'm going to try to remember, I've started doing it in the last couple of times we've made any changes, to call in, we finally figured out how to work the answering machine for the church, so uh, I'm, I can call in from a remote location and put messages on there so that if you have a question when we change, because there will be some changes coming up in December, once again, December will be a month of flexibility for Wednesday night Bible class. Uh, then you can just call in and the accurate information will be on the answering machine so you can find out. And that way, too, if uh, there's a threat of problem weather during the winter and you haven't heard anything yet and you want to know whether or not class has been canceled, uh, one of the first things we'll do is call and put that message on the answering machine so you can just call in and check that way. So we're going to try to use that a little more efficiently this year. But as I said, if you have uh, any changes of phone numbers, addresses, anything like that, let Louise know. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer in order to... Uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to uh, focus our thinking on studying the Word this morning to get away from the distractions of whatever happened this last week, whatever's going to happen this afternoon, and whatever you fear and dread might happen this coming week. We need to focus on the Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word this morning because it is your word that is a refreshment to our souls. It is the opportunity to focus our thinking on the eternal realities as you have defined them for human history. Now, Father, we pray that as we study, we might be responsive to your word and responsive to the challenge of your word, that as we study it, we will learn how to think and respond to the situations in life as you would have us to respond. And, Father, we pray that... Two, for our nation at this time of crisis, this time of war against terrorism, that you will uh, give our leaders wisdom and objectivity that uh, we might be able to have all of our services work together as one, that uh, intelligence-seeking operations will find the information they need and that we will be able to uh, find and discover the leaders of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and that you would watch over our troops. Father, we pray for courage among our leaders, and steadfastness and resolve among our people. Father, we pray again for our own response to your word this morning, that as we study it, we may understand it, and it might be clear to us under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, and we're still in the introductory verses which deal with the, his, the background to the book. The first five verses deal with the background, the setting, what sets things up for this particular book. There we are introduced to the major characters, uh, primarily Naomi. Naomi. This book, even though it is in, entitled Ruth, it is really about Naomi. 
It is about how Naomi comes to understand God's purposes in her life for uh, suffering and blessing. How she begins at the opening of the book as a woman who is uh, empty and ends the book as a woman who is full. book begins, locates us in time during the time of the Judges. There's a famine in the land, and we've seen from our study of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, that a famine in Israel means that God is disciplining the nation. So it is during one of the cycles of discipline during the period of the Judges. We don't know exactly which one, but having spent a year and a half in the book of the Judges, we have a clear understanding of what that time was like. So it was at one of those times when they were being disciplined by God. For famine in an agricultural area means there's no rain. It's a time of drought, which was promised as part of God's discipline on the nation for failure to obey the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law, obedience to the Mosaic Law, God's faithfulness to the Mosaic Law, all form a backdrop to understanding crucial issues in this, in this book. Then we're told during this time of crisis, rather than responding to God, trying to utilize this suffering as an opportunity to grow spiritually and to trust God, uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi leave the promised land. They leave the place of blessing, which has now become a place of cursing, in order to find sustenance, in order to find life, in order to find a solution to their problem outside the plan of God. The plan of God for any Jew is to be in the promised land. So once a Jew goes outside the promised land, just as Abraham went outside the promised land on two different occasions to try to solve the problem of famine, it is indicative of the fact that they are out of the will of God, out of the plan of God, and they are seeking to solve their problems on by man's way. So they have gone to Moab, seeking to be filled and instead they find emptiness. They go to Moab seeking prosperity, but instead they discover adversity. They are seeking fertility, but what they find is barrenness. They seek happiness, and they find sorrow. They seek success, but they find that they are impoverished, and instead of finding life, they discover death. And so by the end of this opening introduction, we see... Naomi left a widow, left destitute, with no one there to take care of her. Her two children are both dead, and all we have is three widows, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Incidentally, for those of you who want to tie, like to tie things in culturally, um, Oprah Winfrey's mother named her for Orpah, and except she got the letters transposed and named her Oprah instead of Orpah. I heard her tell that story. Everybody thinks I'm telling a joke when I say that, but that's the truth. I heard her say that on her television show one time. So if you ever wonder where that name comes from, it's from the book of Ruth. So she's left with two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and now we have a problem. She is faced with her own crisis, her own suffering, her own adversity, and she is going to respond Without doctrine, she's going to end up being self-focused, self-absorbed in her own suffering. She is going to start whining and crying about her suffering and end up, by the end of the chapter, we will discover that she is a, an empty, lonely, bitter old woman. And so we're going to get into the whole doctrine of bitterness and how to avoid bitterness and what bitterness does to the soul before we wrap up this particular chapter. But before we get there, we have to understand God's plan and purposes for suffering. So often when people encounter suffering like this because it strikes at the very core of our own lives, we tend to wrap our lives up around our loved ones, that we tend to blame God. There are many people who reach out and blame God for suffering that occurs in their life, and especially at this time in our nation's history after the events of September 11th. Many people seem to ask, how can a loving God let something like that happen? And, of course, that's part of an overall picture, which we saw last time in terms of our introduction to the doctrine of undeserved suffering. The overall question is, why is there evil in the world? Why, did, why does God allow for uh, 
bad things to happen to good people. And I stated then that the more interesting question is, why does God really let good things happen to bad people? Because there are a number of assumptions in this discussion that we have to be careful to avoid. When the unbeliever or the carnal believer starts whining and crying about how uh, bad things are and they're filled with self-pity and they want to start blaming God and they ask questions that are consistent with their own false assumptions. And so we have to make sure that we are not entrapped by the way the question is phrased. Proverbs 26.4 says, Don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. So the person, the psalmist says, who rejects God is a fool. The fool has said, his, said in his heart that there is no God. And so the principle is that when we answer the unbeliever according to his human viewpoint reasoning and his human viewpoint presuppositions, we immediately become entrapped. We let him set the agenda and set the categories of the discourse. So we have to be careful uh, not to fall into that trap. And I suggested last time that under the second point that strategically we need to be good chess players in, in talking with people. We need to help them think through the issues as it were. And so often when we get involved in a situation like that, folks are filled with self-pity. They're operating on emotion. They're upset. They're self-absorbed. And what we have to do, one way we can get them to think instead of emote, is to respond to the question with a question. And when they say, how can a loving God let this happen? Or why would God let this happen? Say, well, why wouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? Why why do you think God... um, would allow this kind of suffering, and that forces them to think. Perhaps we can ask questions like, what do you think God is really like? Where do you think evil came from? How do you solve the problem of suffering? Because ultimately, we need, I think we need to throw the whole issue off onto the unbeliever because the unbeliever thinks that he's got some sort of leverage, r- rational leverage against Christianity when he raises this objection. How can a good God let bad things happen to to good people. And even though he thinks he has some position of leverage, he really doesn't because his solution doesn't have a God who controls evil. Evil is just chaotic. Evil may not even be uh, distinguishable from good as it is in many, uh, ultimately in many Eastern philosophies. And only in Christianity is evil controlled by a good God. Only in Christianity does God limit the effect and impacts of evil. Evil is not autonomous. Evil does not just run rampant. God ultimately controls evil, and ultimately, as I showed in the diagram last last time, only in Christianity is evil finite. It had a finite beginning with the fall of Satan, and it has a finite ending because God will restrict it and confine it and judge it in the lake of fire. So only in Christianity is evil and suffering contained and controlled. Any other philosophical system, any other religious system uh, that you can come up with doesn't have that. They have major problems. They think we've got a problem with evil. They're the ones who have a major problem with evil. And that's why, And in one way, many unbelievers just uh, deny evil. So by asking questions, we can do, accomplish really two things. First, we can get them to stop emoting and start thinking, and that in turn puts them in touch with their own God consciousness. Because every single person on this planet, once they, once they reach a certain age, they become aware that there is something greater than them. They become aware that God exists. That's called God consciousness, and that's based on Romans 1, 18 through 20. So everybody is God conscious, no matter how much they may uh, say, they, say they're not, no matter how resistant they may be to the uh, reality of God, no matter how much they may uh, protest, they do know that God exists. According to Romans 1, 18 to 20, the knowledge of God is evident within them. But they are in the process of suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. And over the years, they create layer upon layer upon layer of rationalizations and scar tissue on top of that that God consciousness. And so it is at times of crisis, times usually of suffering, times when they are hurting, that 
we can pierce through some questions, pierce those defense layers, those defensive layers that they have built up in order to keep from facing the reality of their own God consciousness. So when we ask questions like this, it focuses their thinking a little more on the reality of their own God consciousness. Third point I made last time was that we need to realize that all of these questions have certain underlying assumptions. For example, if the question is, how can a good God allow these things to happen to good people? We need to question the reality. How do you know people are good? Are people inherently good? There is an assumption there the unbeliever has that people are inherently righteousness, except the Scripture says that they're not. When the rich young ruler inquired of Jesus, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? In Mark 10:18, no one is good except God alone. Furthermore, Romans 3:12, quoting from Psalm 14:3, says that there no one does good; there is not even one. So the assumption of modern man often is that people are basically good, and the statement of Scripture is that people are basically evil. They are sinners. That's what evil is, and everyone is born with an active sin nature and is under condemnation. So that's one assumption. Another assumption, if that is, if God is all-powerful, then God must cause evil. And the problem with that is that that's just another way man avoids personal responsibility for bad decisions. See, at the very core of this is the whole issue of human accountability and human responsibility. And even that seems to be something that is obvious to even some screwball religious uh, people today. I was watching, I hate to admit this, one of my high school classmates on TV the other day, a woman by the name of Marianne Williamson. She's one of these uh, screwball New Age uh, gurus that popped up back in the 90s. And... Um, uh, I think Larry King asked her, well, how can God let these things happen? And she said, well, God God didn't cause this to happen. God created people with free will, and they chose, they made decisions to uh, take evil action. And I thought, well, you know, even a stopped watch is right twice a day. <laughs> so sometimes the, the truth of God is painfully available, uh, obvious to even... Uh, even screwed up unbelievers. But that's the exact issue, and that is that man wants to avoid responsibility and blame God for his own bad decisions. Because the inherent problem with volition is that man desperately wants to be free and to make free, unfettered choices and to be free from God. He wants autonomy. He wants independence. He wants to run his life his own way and do whatever he wants to do. But as soon as he comes face to face with the reality of negative consequences and sin and suffering uh, and he can't get his way because horrible things are happening, then he wants to all of a sudden invent God and then blame God. So God then becomes a patsy for all of man's bad decisions. So we have to ask the question uh, and focus on the issue of human responsibility and that evil exists not because God created it, but because God created creatures with free will. And it is their wrong use and, fall, and bad use of volition that created evil and that causes evil. Nevertheless, God controls evil and is able to use it for his purposes. Now, another problem that often comes up in this whole question, or that we should address in this, is um, when people raise the question, how can God let, let something like this happen? Or if God is all-powerful, he really wouldn't let evil happen. We ought to ask the question, how much evil is too much evil in order for God to remain good? Now, that I saw some brains turn over when I said that. Let me say that again. See, so often people, people don't ever raise this question until something horrible happens, like you have the World Trade Center and you have 6,000 people, approximately 6,000 people killed. And so people then say, well, well, God must not be in control. But what, what, um, would God still be good if only 
Or would God be good if only a thousand people had been killed? Or would God be good if only 500 people had been killed? Or would God be good if only one person had been killed? See, all of a sudden the question only comes up when this matter of degree occurs. And that reveals a complete inconsistency in the way the unbeliever thinks. That they think God only, the question only comes up in the extreme situations like the Holocaust. Six million Jews are killed by the Nazis during World War II, well, would God be good if only 500,000 had been killed? Or would God be good if only 100,000 had been killed? Or 1,000 or what? How, how, how much is it qualitatively in order to, to render God no longer good? So those are just some examples of how, as believers, when we're witnessing to people, we can think about the real meaning of what the unbel- of the questions the unbeliever raises so that we can not just sit there as people so often do when they're faced with a tough question like that and, and just fall back on some rote answer, but you can engage the unbeliever by asking questions, respond to his questions with other questions that force him to think about the inconsistencies of his own questions and his own position. And, uh, and we saw from the Mark 10 passage that when uh, the young, rich young ruler came to Jesus and queried him, Jesus responded with a question to focus the young man's thinking. We need to focus on the issue of evil. Now, that is a summary of the first three po- points that I covered last Sunday, and that brings us to the fourth point, which is the origin of evil. The origin of evil, as I've indicated already, is creaturely vo- volition. God is absolute righteousness. God is plus R, and in His integrity, in His integrity, He cannot create evil. A righteous God can create nothing less than perfection. So when God created the angels, they were all created perfect. When God created man, He created man in the image and likeness of God, and He created man with positive perfection. Now, often, especially in Previous uh, decades, I've heard that, that, uh, and I think this was popularized some by the way the Schofield Reference Bible referred to the original period before the fall as an age of innocence, that man was created sort of neutral. He really didn't have positive righteousness. But the terminology, image and likeness of God from Genesis 1, 26 to 28, clearly indicates that Adam was created with a positive righteousness. It was an untested righteousness, but it was a positive righteousness. There's a difference between a a tested and an untested righteousness, but it's not the difference between neutrality and positive righteousness. So he's created with a positive righteousness, but he also has volition. He has self-determination. He can make decisions, and he has one crucial decision to make in relationship to the test of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whether or not to eat. Now, when Adam ate, he introduced evil into the human race, but that was the second introduction of evil into creation. The first was when Lucifer fell. That's covered in Isaiah chapter 14 uh, and Ezekiel chapter 28. When Lucifer fell, he was created perfect. He was created the highest of all of the angels. He had more intelligence, more beauty, more skill, more wisdom than all of the other angels. And yet, with all of that intelligence, with all of that skill, with all of that beauty, with all the ability that God gave, gave Lucifer, he still fell into arrogance, which tells us that arrogance and sin is not a matter of intellect. It's not a matter of talent. It's not a matter of uh, personal ability. It has to do with volition. And he chose wrongly, and that introduced evil into the universe. So evil is the result not of God creating evil, but evil is the result of, dis- of creatures who make bad decisions, who disobey God. So evil originated in time, and evil will be judged and restricted and confined to the lake of fire eventually. So only in Christianity is there a temporal restriction to evil. It has God has a plan and a purpose in which he allows or permits evil to exist, but it does not run rampant. God still is in control. This is the whole picture of Job 1 and 2 when we look at Job, which is a in some sense Ruth is a is has theodicic elements. 
That's from the word theodicy, which means an explanation of evil, God's role in relationship to evil. And Job is a theodicy. It's an explanation of how God uses evil in the lives of people. And there we see in the opening chapters of Job that all of the angels come before God and Satan, and that includes the fallen angels and Satan. And Lucifer says to God, well, look, look, at, look at Job. Uh, he obeys you and he loves you, but that's because you've provided all these good things for him. And so God then gives Lucifer per- permission or Satan permission to test Job, but not in relationship to his own health or his own body initially. And then secondly, then God allows that test. But Job is tested. He loses his children, loses his house, loses his wealth, loses everything but his wife. And I'm sure he at one point wished he'd lost his wife because she basically told him just to curse God and die, and she had no solution. And uh, there we learn that God has a purpose for suffering. He utilizes it in the life of his creatures to, to achieve a greater good. Now, this is another problem in the way the whole argument, the whole issue of the problem of evil presents itself is because as finite creatures, no matter what happens, I've read a lot of scholarly, philosophical uh, treatments of the problem of evil from both a Christian view and a non-Christian view, and the non-Christian view always shipwrecks on the rock of omniscience because the human being... Almost in every case, the person who is trying to challenge uh, the Christian explanation of evil falls apart because they can't conceive of a good so great that would allow the existence of evil. But see, what they're trying to do is act as God. They're trying to think they're omniscient. They fall apart because in their finite knowledge, they can't conceive of a good so great that God can allow evil in order to achieve that. Therefore, they think that since I can't think of a good so great, there must not be in existence a good so great that God could allow evil to achieve that end. So therefore, uh, God can't be good. And the problem is that we may not, we don't understand all the facts. We have limited knowledge. Man is a finite creature. We don't see the whole picture. And it is only God who sees the whole picture and understands how he can utilize evil and suffering in order to achieve certain ends. So God controls evil, and that's the story of of Job. And when you come to the end from Job 38 to 42, when Job has challenged God, and finally God comes in the whirlwind to address Job, God sets Job straight by telling Job, Who are you, the creature, to question me, the creator? You don't have the knowledge I have. And that's the whole point in that those four chapters is to demonstrate to the creature that he ha- hasn't the knowledge to be able to evaluate the decisions of God. And that brings us to the fifth point, which is a, just a summary of the reasons for suffering. Why do we suffer? What are the reasons for suffering? First of all, we suffer because we live in a fallen world. After Adam sinned, we all live in a fallen world. We live in, a, in the devil's world. We live in a cosmic system that is under the curse and judgment of God. And so because we live in a, in a system that has been corrupted by sin, there is always going to be suffering. There, is going, there are going to be all kinds of problems. We're going to have to go out and rake leaves every day for the next month. And every time you do that, just think about Adam. I just thought I would bring that home to everybody. We live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, we're going to have to deal with a certain number of problems and difficulties. Second, we live with fallen creatures. Look at the person to your left or right that you uh, entered into marriage vows with not too long ago, and they're just as corrupt a sinner as you are. And because you live with them, sometimes you are going to suffer because they make bad decisions from their sin nature. And guess what? Sometimes they're going to have to suffer because you make bad decisions from your sin nature. And that's why we have to be grace-oriented and come to understand the, the whole doctrine of impersonal love as believers is because we are always tied up in close relationships with other sinners. And we have to learn grace. That's not to excuse their bad decisions. That is not to, uh, 
turn our back on their irresponsibilities, but it is to give us the ability to live in grace with those who make bad decisions, whether they are our parents or our children or our siblings or whether they are people we work with or at an even more distant level, people who govern our nation and make bad decisions in terms of government. We live with sinners, and sinners are always going to make bad decisions, and sooner or later their bad decisions are going to come back and hurt us, and we're going to have to deal with issues in our life, maybe our whole life, because of somebody else's bad decisions. And we can't respond to that out of anger, bitterness, resentment, envy, or anything else. We have to learn to handle those situations through the problem-solving devices. So we, we live in a fallen world, and we live with fallen creatures, And then thirdly, we live with our own fallen nature. We live with our own sin nature. And that means we are going to make bad decisions from a position of weakness. And a position of weakness is defined as the area of weakness of our sin nature, which is the source of personal sins, whether they're overt sins, mental attitude sins, or sins of the tongue. Our sin nature produces bad decisions. And bad decisions are any decision that is generated from the sin nature. That can be a a bad decision from the area of weakness. It can even be a bad decision from the area of human good. But when we make any decision that originates from the sin nature, it is eventually a bad decision, and there are eventual consequences to pay. So we live in a fallen world. We live with fallen creatures, and we have our own sin nature. Therefore, we suffer from the bad decisions of others, and we suffer from our own bad decisions, and we can't escape that. So we have to learn how to resolve those bad decisions, and that's part of God's purpose for the believer, is because God has provided the ten stress busters, the problem-solving devices. These are spiritual skills so that we can face and handle any circumstance, any situation, no matter how bad it is, no matter how how horrific it may be, and no no matter how painful it may be, whether it happened when you were two or three years old and you were perhaps uh, involved in some horrendous accident or perhaps somebody did something horrible to you, or whether that happens later in life, maybe you're the uh, victim in an automobile accident and you're left paralyzed from the neck down for the rest of your life, or maybe that you're just the victim of your own bad decision and you dive off a high rock into a shallow pool and break your neck and you are now paralyzed for the rest of your life, Uh, that's a bad decision and you deal with the consequences. But God has provided a system, a system of thinking and a system of application of doctrine so that no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how horrible they may be, no matter how miserable, miserable they may be, we can still have peace and contentment and stability in the midst of that horrible suffering. So these are the reasons for suffering, and then the purposes for suffering, that's point number six. The purposes for deserved and undeserved suffering. First of all, let's look at purposes for deserved suffering, because that's the shorter of the two. Purposes for deserved suffering are two. First of all, uh, natural consequences of our own sins. Whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. We suffer the natural, natural consequences of our own bad decisions. Now, the interesting thing is, in the law of behavior, the, the, what, we, what we reap often occurs months, years, decades after we sow. So, the, to me, when I look out on various believers I know in life, what's interesting is that when we get to advanced age, I, I think between the time, time that we're that, that we're, we're, we're young, between then and the time that we reach somewhere in our 60s or 70s, we all have uh, security blankets. We all have our uh, security blankets that we rely on. We trust God, but there's always some sort of fallout shelter that if somehow God doesn't bail us out, then I've got a 401k plan. You know, if God doesn't bail me out, then I've got something else that I'm relying on. I've got a rich uncle, or I've got, um, I've got many talents or abilities. I've got a great job. I can work hard. Whatever it is, we've got something that we know that's sort of our ace in the hole, that somehow if God doesn't come through, we will. But the interesting thing is, and this is a warning because nearly all of you are young, 
and still in a position where you're doing that. When you get to be about 70-ish, you don't have the opportunity to use your security blanket anymore because it's not there. And I watch this time and time again. People have been in church. They've been taking in doctrine. They have appeared to be positive year after year after year after year. And then suddenly when they get into their 70s, they get hit with a major financial test. They get hit with a major health test. And all of a sudden, they can't rely on anything else anymore except God. And all of a sudden, uh, the curtains are pulled back, and you see what's really in the soul of that individual. And nine times out of ten, I've seen this so many times with, uh, with, with uh, looking at uh, people that, that my parents have been friends with for years. I watch it in them. Other people I know that are in their 70s and 80s, and I watch them hit certain crises when they're in their 70s and 80s, and it reveals what they've really been doing for the last 40 years in church. These are, many cases, people who have taught Bible classes, taught Sunday school classes, been involved in consistent Christian activity, and they ought to know better. All of a sudden, they hit 75, and some crisis hits, and you hear, you watch what's really in their soul. Because at that point, there's nothing else to rely on. It's either God or something else. And that's when the ultimate test comes. And believe me, the tests that come in our senior years are going to be some of the toughest for some of us because we haven't really been practicing doctrine. We haven't been practicing the application of doctrine in all the minor tests and all the other tests throughout all the years. And all of a sudden, when there's nothing else to rely on, it's too late. And those years are going to be horrible years for some of you because you're not really learning to apply doctrine. So the first reason for suffering is deserved suffering. It's just natural consequences that come as a result of bad decisions. And they may pile up and not hit you until you're 80 years old, and then it's going to be too late to do anything about it. The other reason for deserved suffering is divine discipline. And this is where God takes the natural consequences and intensifies them. God takes the natural consequences and intensifies them in the life of the believer because he is trying to teach the believer or get the believer's attention to get them back in fellowship, to confess their sins and get back in fellowship and begin applying doctrine. So point number six is, has two categories, the purposes for deserved suffering and the purposes for undeserved suffering. Now, most of us don't have a problem with deserved suffering. We figure if we live a certain lifestyle or make certain decisions and certain things happen, then, well, we just got what was coming to us. Well, we all want to scream and cry is when we get into undeserved suffering. Now, as I stated earlier, because we live in a fallen world with fallen creatures and have a fallen nature, we're all going to suffer from undeserved suffering. So what are the purposes? Well, in relationship to the unbeliever, it is a wake-up call to evangelism. For the unbeliever, undeserved suffering is a wake-up call to evangelism. It forces the unbeliever to face his own mortality, faces the unbeliever to start asking questions about the purpose and meaning of life, and it perhaps gets the unbeliever to focus on his own creatureliness and gets him to focus on his God consciousness. So undeserved suffering for the unbeliever is designed to get his attention in evangelism so that perhaps he will respond positively to the gospel and put his faith alone in Christ alone. For the believer, undeserved suffering is related to spiritual growth. It's related to spiritual growth because it is when we go through undeserved suffering that we have the opportunities to respond by using the problem-solving devices. These are spiritual skills that enable us to grow and advance as believers. And if we do not master those skills, we will not grow, we will not advance, and we will not be able to handle the problems. And instead of having joy and contentment and tranquility in life as the final goal of the believer's life, as the ultimate, as the tenth stress buster, what happens is we fall apart and fragment and we become miserable, we become self-absorbed, and fall apart in self-pity. So 
one reason for undeserved suffering for the believer is spiritual growth. The second reason is that it is a witness to others. First of all, it is a witness, as we see in Job, to both angels and demons. It is a testimony of God's grace and God's provision. It's a testimony to angels, to demons, and to Satan. Second, it is a witness to unbelievers. It is a witness to unbelievers because they're going to look at our lives and see us go through undeserved suffering and instead of falling apart, instead of pushing the panic button, instead of being afraid to go to the airport and get on an airplane, instead of being afraid to uh, do any number of things, we're relaxed, we're calm. In fact, we have a boldness and a courage in facing life. And right now that ought to be even more true of every one of us. There ought to be almost an edge People in this country are scared to death. They are turning to jello. Just eight at this point, I think the count is that eight people have actually contracted anthrax. A number of people have been exposed, but only eight people, only eight people. I was watching um, I think it was one of the one of the talk shows this last week, and uh, they were interviewing David Franz. Now, David Franz is, used to be the, uh, in, the commander of USAMRID, which is the United States Army uh, Medical Research and Infectious Disease Program down at Fort Detrick. And he is a believer who has been on Bible doctrine for years and years and years, and now he's retired from the military. But he was one of the... Um, men involved in going into Iraq to check out all of their uh, biochemical warfare uh, capabilities at the end of the Gulf War. And two or three years ago, uh, Dan Ingram and uh, Pam and I were down there, and he gave us a personal tour through USAMRIT. If any of you have read The Hot Zone, he's mentioned in The Hot Zone. That's where The Hot Zone exists. And um, anyway, he was being interviewed the other day, and he said, you know, there's a Several hundred thousand people die every year from the flu, and nobody panics over the flu. And so, what we're, we've got to get this whole thing into perspective. But people are scared to death. They're they're turning to jello. They don't want to fly. They don't want to get involved in life. They're they're changing their lives. Every time this last week, you see so many. You hear it on the talk shows. You hear it from the news commentators. And part of this is good. People are talking about the way they're changing their lives. One commentator was talking about how he hasn't had an argument with his wife since September 11th because they realize that nothing's really worth arguing about anymore. Well, unbelievers are coming face-to-face with a lot of crucial issues, and that just means it's a fantastic opportunity to witness and those that, and in opportunities when we can, it's a great time for us to seize the opportunity and be bold about living, that we should not be afraid. And perhaps in, our, uh, in that witness, in that testimony of our own uh, courage and faith and stability and not being afraid in uncertain times, that someone may ask us why we're not afraid when everybody else is falling apart. So a third reason for... Uh, our, our, so, in third reason for a testimony, not only a witness to angels and demons, a witness to unbelievers, um, but then third, a testimony and encouragement to other believers. It is a testimony and encouragement for other believers. So, that summarizes the doctrine of undeserved suffering, why God allows suffering and why God allows suffering to those who appear to be good and those who appear to be undeserving and innocent. Now, let's go back and look at our text a minute. In the first five verses of Ruth, we're introduced to Elimelech's problem-solving device. And Elimelech's problem-solving device is Moab. He decides that he's going to go out of the land, the promised land, the place of blessing, into a place that's really a the place of human viewpoint and the place of paganism. At this particular time in history, Moab is one of the greatest examples of paganism and perversionism in the ancient world. Now, on the overhead, there is a map so that you can get some uh, perspective on just where Moab is. The areas that we're concerned with in in this uh, 
in the story of Bethlehem. They are from Bethlehem. And they went to Moab. So they headed east. They crossed the forge of the, of the Jordan here at the north of the Dead Sea. And they headed uh, south, southeast into Moab, to the fields of Moab. Now the lower half of Moab, the southern half of Moab is a more of a desert highlands. But in the northern half, in the fields of Moab here, uh, to this, just to the upper northeast of the Dead Sea, is an area of fertility and an area where there was a level of prosperity. And what's interesting is this is an area where uh, uh, the promised land, let's say, is an area here that's probably not any wider than the state of Connecticut. In fact, it's probably more narrow than the state of Connecticut. And heading over here to uh, Moab is about like leaving here and going over to Rhode Island. I'll just give you a little geographical perspective. There's no rain in Israel. But there's rain in Moab. See, that's not that far away. That ought to be a real clue to the fact that God is doing something. Because if, it's, if you're not getting any rain here and all the crops are drying up here, and everything is luxuriant and fertile over in Rhode Island, then that ought to be a hint to Israel that something more than just natural meteorological uh, airflow is the, uh, is the cause of this. So in order to understand some of the problems here, we need to do a little background on Moab. Background study on Moab, because what's going to happen is, starting in verse 6, Naomi is going to demonstrate an obvious reluctance to take her Moabite daughters-in-law back into Israel. So let's do a little background to understand why Moab is a place to be avoided and why the Moabites were looked down upon by the Jews. Turn first to Genesis 19.30. Genesis 19.30, and we're going to look at their perverse beginnings. nation that starts off perverse can't help but continue to be perverse. There in Genesis 19.30, we discover Lot just after his escape from... Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment on the cities there because of their perversion. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in a cave, he and his two daughters. Verse 31. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. So they decide that they are going to solve their problem through alcohol, and they're going to get dad drunk. So first they get him drunk, and then the next option is let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So Lot is just uh, three sheets to the wind here and completely out of it in a drunken stupor. And so his daughters take advantage of him in that uh, condition and commit incest with him. And then verse 34, the second daughter, it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. So this gives us the origin of the Moabites. And the name Moab is from the preposition men in Hebrew, meaning from, plus the word av, which means father, as in Abraham, Avram. Moab, from my father. It is also etymologically related to another Hebrew word meaning desire. And so there's a hint of real perversion in the name of Moab. The second son is ben, named Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Am- Ammonites, and Ben-Ami means the son of my people. So Moab is a child of perversion, and his descendants are no less perverse. The first place, one of the first places we really meet the Amorites is in Numbers uh, chapter 21 and following. And there, 
the Moabites under their king Balak are trying to pervert the Israelites. So Moab is always a picture in the Old Testament of those who are trying to destroy Israel. They are trying to seduce Israel and they are trying to uh, wipe them out militarily. So Balak calls upon this uh, wayward, reversionistic prophet by the name of Balaam. And Balaam has a, is riding his donkey, referred to as his ass, riding his donkey in to come over there. And the angel gives his uh, donkey the opportunity to uh, talk and resist him. And that's a very fascinating story about Balaam's talking ass. But that will just get us diverted from our study this morning. So I just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. <laughs> The uh, chief god of the, of the Moab pantheon is Chemosh. Now, Chemosh is a particularly pre- perverted god because in order to satisfy him, you have to put your child on the, on the altar. And Chemosh, the, usually the figures were very tall. His arms were outstretched, and between his arms is a fireplace. And so they would stoke the furnace up, and then they would put their infant on his arms, and there would be a... Uh, child sacrifice, a, 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 an ola, a burnt offering to Chemosh. But they not only worshipped Chemosh, but among the pantheon of gods that they worshipped was also Baal, Baal. So the first mention of the word Baal or Baal is found in Numbers chapter 25. Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 4. Now the Israelites at this time have come out from Egypt in the Exodus, and they're coming up from the south. They come up around the southern part of the Dead Sea, and they're coming up on the eastern side through Moab. And Moab doesn't want them to come through their land, and so Balak is trying to stop them. And that's what the whole episode with with, uh, Balaam and his prophecy is all about, because uh, Balak wants Balaam to curse... um, the Jews, and he thinks that somehow he has this mystical view of cursing, that somehow if Balaam curses the Jews, then they won't be able to have any success. God prevents that from happening in order to teach Balak a lesson. Um, but Balaam, in his perversion, tells Balak how he can uh, destroy the effectiveness of Israel, even though he is prevented by God from cursing them. And so he gave uh, Balak his, his plan of operation, and that was to take his young, marriageable women. And apparently the uh, daughters of Moab were quite attractive and, and uh, uh, quite beautiful. And so they were to go out and seduce the Jews. And this is what happens in Numbers 25 Verse 1, there we read, While Israel was at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people, that is Israel, ate and bowed down to their gods. So they, they get involved in spiritual adultery and reversionism with the Moabites, and they get involved in physical uh, adultery and fornication with the daughters of Moab. And the result of that was that it would destroy the purity of Abraham's descendants. And so God has to judge the nation, and he judges not only Israel, but also the Moabites at that point. Verse 3, so Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. So they're getting involved with the fertility religion and the phallic cult of Baalism. And the Lord was angry against Israel, and the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So once again, we see the importance and impact uh, that God demands the destruction and the taking of life for those who commit certain sins. Now the next place that we meet the Moabites is in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. And there we find a number of fascinating uh, pre- uh, prohibitions in relationship to those who can come into the presence of the Lord. 
These are various restrictions on those who can come into the presence of the Lord. First of all, no one who is emasculated. That would refer to the eunuchs. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. And verse 3, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even notice, even to the tenth generation. No descendant of the Ammonites or Moabites shall enter the the uh, assembly of the Lord down to the tenth generation because they did not meet with you with food and water on the way when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor Mesopotamia to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God was not willing to listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. So there's a specific prohibition to Israel that they are not to seek the prosperity or the fertility in Moab all their days. And yet, what is Elimelech doing? Elimelech is going over to Moab in order to solve the problem of the famine in the land. Now, the next major event, the fourth major event, where we find Israel pitted against Moab and the Moabites, is in Judges chapter 3, the episode we looked at where Fatty killed Lefty, or Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. You remember that story where you had the extremely obese Eglon, king of Moab, who was assassinated by the judge Ehud, who was a left-handed, he, he was a southpaw, so he got into the, he was able to get into the palace by hiding his uh, weapon on his uh, right thigh. That was not an area where they would search looking for a weapon because he would draw it from that side instead of the normal left side, and he was able to assassinate the king of Moab. So Israel was put under oppression from Moab for 18 years. Now, now that's our backdrop. So Moab is not a positive place for the people of Israel, and yet this is where Elimelech looks in order to find a solution to the problem of famine, to the problem of taking care of his family. He goes to the Moabites, and that's exactly what most Christians end up doing, is whenever they face problems in life, they end up looking somewhere else for the solutions to life's problems. They look to some sort of uh, gimmick. They look to some sort of human viewpoint solution. They go through some type of psychotherapy, which is ultimately rooted in human viewpoint analyses of the soul and human viewpoint analysis of problem solving, and it can never produce anything. It may produce some level of stability uh, temporarily, but that's not the goal of spiritual life. The goal of spiritual life is to solve our problems exclusively by depending upon God the Holy Spirit and by applying the Scriptures, the promises and the procedures that God has outlined in the Scriptures. So we find, uh, find Naomi at the end of verse 5, destitute. She's a widow. She has no hope. She has no one to provide for her, no one to take care of her. And yet she also seems to have some level or thinks she has some level of responsibility for her two daughters-in-law. And that brings us to verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law. And the Hebrew text is precise here. The emphasis is always on Naomi at this point. It is not on the daughters-in-law. In fact, the way the Hebrew construction reads is then she arose and then, oh, and also her daughters-in-law. So they're viewed by the writer as just secondary. The focus is on Naomi and Naomi's response to the crisis. And she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. Now, here we come to an important concept. The word, uh, Hebrew word is pakad, for visited. And it is really an anthropomorphic term that is rooted, an anthropomorphic term 
that is rooted in our understanding of the covenant. Remember, I, I took some time at the introduction to go through and remind us again of the nature of the Mosaic Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant is built on the ancient model of the suzerain vassal treaty form that was uh, typically used in the mid-2nd century B.C., And in that treaty form, God is viewed as the great king, like the king of an empire, who has entered into a relationship with surrounding nations. And just as the king of a great empire, like the king of the Hittites, when they'd conquered various other peoples, they would enter into relationships with them, and the king would say, okay, if you are uh, helpful, if you're obedient to my stipulations, then I'm going to do this for you. If you're not, then I'm going to... Uh, do that for you. I will judge you or attack you or take away your food or whatever the uh, punishments might be. God has done the same thing with Israel, looking upon Israel as a special treaty nation with God. They're the only nation in the world that God has ever entered into this kind of, of treaty with. And so the term pakad is a picture of the great king coming to his vassal in order to see how things are going and to find out if they're really being obedient. Now, God is omniscient. God doesn't need to come down and temporally visit mankind. But that's the picture that is presented here. So it's a very anthropomorphic picture. And remind you, an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech in which something in the human realm is ascribed to God, which he does not actually possess or does not actually do, in order to illustrate for us God's plans, policies, and procedures. So it is a, taking something, in the, usually something of human form, and ascribing it to God, even though God does not actually possess this. God is omniscient. His eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth. So God is, in his omniscience, he is continually aware of everything that is going on in human history, always has been and always will be. And so he doesn't need to temporarily come down from heaven and walk around the earth. But that's the image that is presented here. And then we have a clause in the Hebrew presented by a Lamed that seems to suggest how he visited them. He visited them by giving them food. The New American Standard translates it in giving them food. He visited his people by giving them food. And food is really the result of the action. It is what's called a metonymy of substitution, the effect for the cause. God gave them food. That's the effect. What was the cause? Rain. See, the promise in Leviticus 26 was that God would shut up the heavens and the sky would be like bronze, and there would be no rain. And the result of no rain was no food. So when it says God visited his people uh, by giving them food, we know that God has sent rain now, and God is blessing Israel. And Naomi seems to have enough understanding of God and enough understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures and enough understanding of what's going on here where she realizes that God is no longer cursing the nation. God is now blessing the nation. And if she gets back across the Jordan River back home, then she might get a few crumbs. So she she is a picture, though, of a believer who has a very tired faith, a faith that has no confidence, a faith that has little hope, a faith that just thinks, maybe if I go back, things might get a little better. But she has no real confidence, and that's why she gets wants the girls to go home, is she's just going to drag herself home, uh, full of self-pity, uh, beating herself up, uh, bitter against God, and just hope that somehow, some way, a few little crumbs will come off the table for her. Little does she know, and this is the irony of this whole book, little does she know that less than three feet from her, in the, in the person of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is the most fantastic blessing she can ever experience, who is going to in turn be the grandmother of the greatest blessing, uh, one of the greatest blessings that Israel in the Old Testament ever had, and who will be in the line of the Messiah. So she, she's focusing on her, her terrible circumstances, and rather than trusting God, because she's limited in her knowledge, she, see, in our, our finite knowledge, we're just supposed to trust God. We don't see the whole picture. And God never clues Naomi into the whole picture. But the whole picture is her return to the land gives Ruth the opportunity to, to demonstrate her faithfulness to Naomi and her faithfulness to God. And that, in turn, is going to put her in the line of the Messianic seed. And so in the midst of her 
absence, in the midst of her loss, in the midst of her, her misery, God is already filling her. He is already moving to, has moved to answer her, her prayer, and she doesn't even know it. See, that's the problem. When we start whining and crying and getting in self-pity over how horrible things are and whatever has happened, we're failing to realize that God has a plan and a purpose and He can be providing the blessing and the solution even while we're crying and moaning and groaning over our difficulty. So this is what we're going to look at when we come back next time, is how God provides blessing for Naomi, but first we have to understand the dynamics and the self-destruction of bitterness and mental attitude sins. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We recognize that so often we fail when we face crises, when we face disappointments and difficulties. We fail to respond by using doctrine, by failing to trust your word and claim your promises. Father, we are challenged by the example of Naomi and Ruth, of the importance of realizing that you have a plan, a purpose, and you are developing in us the character of Jesus Christ. And that even though we may not fully understand why certain things happen in our lives, our responsibility is to trust you and to apply doctrine, and that in the midst of that suffering, you are working great things. Father, we pray that we'd be challenged and encouraged by the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.